Welcome back to the Save It for the Blind podcast. I am Carson Odegaard, the Hunt Program Coordinator for CWA, and we have a heck of an episode today with uh, talking about politics and our political effort at CWA. So my guests today on my right, we have CWA President John Carlson. Across from me, we have Mark Henley, the Vice President of Advocacy. And on his right, or left, we have Mark Smith. Mark, you want to introduce yourself and your your position and how you're affiliated with CWA? Yeah, my name is Mark Smith. I'm the owner of Smith Policy Group. We're a contract lobbying firm, and I basically am part of the CWA team helping with lobbying efforts at the state and the federal level under contract to the organization, and so sort of provide that that extra oomph that the... Uh, the policy and legislative effort needs these days. Okay. How long have you been doing this for CWA? Oh, man. Um, I think we've been working together for four or five years now, something like that. I started my firm around 2018. Prior to that, I had already been working for Grassland Water District, right? And before that, I was actually the in-house government relations person for Ducks Unlimited, right? So I kind of cut my teeth with them and uh, have had the opportunity to work with the three largest organizations in the state working on waterfowl issues, and frankly, it's been a blast. I love it. Okay, great. No, that's that's awesome. So you and Mark, Mark and Mark, work hand-in-hand hand for CWA's political efforts, correct? Yes, and then I should mention, too, we have a federal contract lobbyist in D.C. as well, Natural Resource Results, and we use them as well, too, so they are a part of our team. Okay, so, Very nice. Yeah. We're everywhere. Yeah. Just, hey, the <laughs> more the merrier. He's down at the Capitol every day. And he's got his office down there, and he really checks up on things and makes sure that uh, nothing falls through the cracks. So we appreciate it. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. No, that is great. Well, we'll start with a hot-button topic that has recently popped up in AB28. And I know California hunters, California gun owners, uh, even just ammo purchasers, should be very aware if they aren't aware of AB 28. If, uh, Mark, you want to go into yeah. what it is, when it's coming into effect, if it's already in effect, and kind of the background behind it. Sure. Yeah, it's an 11% excise tax on all firearms and ammunition sold in California. Um, this is actually a bill that has been out there for many years that we have been fighting uh, and it's not just California waterfowl, a whole host of other hunting and gun groups were opposing this legislation. Unfortunately, this year, it finally barely passed the state Senate by one vote, cleared the assembly, and then went to the governor and he signed it into law. Um, we were very disappointed with that. We believe ultimately it's going to be a disincentive for a lot of people to hunt, particularly new hunters that may not have a lot of resources, financial resources at their disposal. And we think the implication that hunters are somehow responsible for gun violence, the way the the measure was written, is really uh, insulting to our community. So, yeah, this one is definitely hard to swallow. So that's the bad news, but um, there is some good news. There's definitely going to be some lawsuits. Um, The bill actually does not take effect until July 1st of 2024. Okay. So there is some lag time there. So run out and buy your shotguns now. Yeah, yeah. Get what you can. Cases of shells. Pile pile it up. Um, And so a lawsuit by CRPA, I think, is very likely. They're one of our partners on this bill opposing it. And um, I've heard of even some other lawsuits. So... 
That's in the works. And then there is going to be an initiative on the November 2024 ballot that's an anti-tax measure. And this anti-tax measure is retroactive to AB 28. If it passes, it would require, and I think it only needs a majority vote to pass, um, it will require that AB 28 go back to not only the Assembly, but the Senate, pass by a two-thirds vote there. And then if it's still able to do that, it will go on a statewide vote to the voters and have to pass by a majority. So there's a very good possibility that this thing, you know, within six months of time of being enacted could then be kind of put on the shelf. Um, We'll see how that goes. I think California Waterfowl, um, we're free to support initiatives one way or the other. Um, if this looks like it has legs, we'll probably help out with that com- campaign and try to, you know, press the voters to to approve it. So, so even though you know there's bad news going around, there's still light at the end of the tunnel yeah. that we could come out, just, you know, the same way we start. It's right. one of these things like it's never over until it's okay. over. And so, yeah, fortunately, we get another bite at the apple. Uh, what Mark's referring to is something called the Taxpayer Protection Act. It's sponsored by the business community, and it's mostly dealing with, you know local taxes, some state taxes as well on business, but it has this unique benefit in that it is retroactive. And as such, it would apply to what just happened in the legislature. And to give some context to AB 28, right? Like it is frustrating for us because we fought this thing off for about 10 years. Wow. The proposal has been around for quite a while. And even as recently as a couple of years ago, we had strong coalitions of both sort of moderate Democrats and progressive left Democrats who weren't supporting the policy. And I'll give you a great example why. Like during COVID, we saw lines outside of gun stores from communities of color and people who had never purchased firearms before because they wanted to purchase firearms for home protection and self-defense, right? Because it was COVID. It was uncertain times, right? I think people recognize that, you know, these barriers, these disincentives to purchasing firearms in their communities were not the right thing to pass, right? And this year, the Brady gun violence, uh, the Brady campaign and, you know, Moms for uh, Gun Violence Prevention, whatever the organizations are called, they did a good job of arm wrestling legislators into submission to finally get this thing over the finish line. We actually had some doubts whether the governor would sign it. I mean, ultimately, he did end up signing it. But The governor has staked out a position for himself that he doesn't really want to go out and raise a bunch of taxes and fees, right? It's not a very popular position a lot of the times. And here's a guy who's thinking about running for president in a couple years, right? I mean, he makes no bones about that. And so when you pass something like this in the state of California, that becomes your historical record, right? That's the kind of thing that gets brought up on the campaign trail when you're thinking about running at a nationwide level. And there are plenty of people out there who would disagree with this policy in California. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious to see how that ends up shaking That's, that's a very interesting point because I think the average person doesn't take that into account. You know, they see it as, oh, 11%, and that's where it ends in in their thought process. And, and coming from your background, that thought process is like, this could have ramifications for him down the line. Sure. And it's it's a big deal. It's not just, oh, here's 11%, I'll sign it, you know, the – the people that are the gun owners are going to, you know, fault for it. But there's there's a lot more to that. Sure. I mean, it's having immediate ramifications for one of the people that cast the deciding vote that let this thing out of the Senate, putting on the governor's desk. And, um, you know, frankly, we were surprised that Senator Melissa Hurtado from the San Joaquin Valley voted in support of this bill. She'd been a staunch opponent of it previously. 
Um, I text messages in my phone indicating that she wasn't going to vote for the bill. And then it gets called up on the floor and lo and behold, she casts a yes vote. She's running for Congress right now uh, against Representative David Valadeo. And she's got a Democratic primary she's got to get through. And frankly, I hear that this is becoming an issue in her campaign, right? She represents a Democrat, or she's trying to get elected to a Democratic leading seat in the San Joaquin Valley. But Democrats in the Valley, they enjoy their hunting. They enjoy their recreational sports shooting. Um, and so we're going to see whether or not a vote like this has an impact in a candidate's race almost immediately. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. John, do you see this? Say, you know, worst case scenario, it ends up sticking around. How is this going to have ramifications for, you know, hunters and the R3, the new hunters that are coming back, the old ones that are being reactivated? Um, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I agree with Mark and well, both Marks. This is going to be very, very damaging to people trying to get into the sport, new folks. I mean, there's so much competition out there right now for people, uh, act, you know, for their recreational time. There's competition across the board. Uh, teenagers, you know, now they're practicing their sports year-round, basically. So to get them into an uh, activity like hunting, it's challenging for the families. And then, you know, every dollar counts, so you've got this raise in, in 11%. On top of it already being expensive, we're not. We're no one's saying it's not expensive to be a hunter in this state. Yes, it so, is <laughs> right. So I, I just, it's terrible. And to put this on the backs of law-abiding citizens, um, it, it's a travesty. It's yeah. not just hunters, right? You got to think about the school programs, the trap shooting programs, exactly. the yeah. competition right. programs. Yeah, I mean, yeah. kids go on to get college scholarships out of programs it's like good that. Point. Right? My and son's been shooting in the uh, California Youth Shooting Sports um, Association since he was in seventh grade, and uh, and I'm a coach on the team here in in town. And uh, you're right; you're absolutely right. The families that you know that season goes from like January until July, so the you know the the folks that are really serious, they're practicing. Twice a week, the the kids are usually shooting two hundred rounds a week. That's going to add up on eleven percent, big time. And then you've got fees for all the uh, tournaments, and but the kids that are at the top, they get they do get college scholarship yeah. offers. We have like three folks from our team, three young men and women that are in college now because of that. So it's all it's an impact across the board, no doubt about it. Gotcha. Well, let's switch over to something a little more bright. So the nesting bird habitat incentive program. Um, Mark, do you want to talk about what that is and, and how it began and, and where yeah. we're at with that? Yeah. So everybody that's a duck hunter and a pheasant hunter in California knows that, you know, we've had this long-term decline in local mallard populations as well as pheasant populations. And so, you know, years ago, CWA looked at this and obviously there's many components to that, but one certainly is the lack of nesting cover in certain areas, particularly in agricultural areas that have irrigated agriculture, your, you know, your rice fields, you know, they just don't have that cover out on the rice checks or you don't have the same following that you did say, you know, in the late nineties, mid nineties. And so, you know, the whole point is, what can we do then to bring these birds back and support their breeding mm-hmm. effort? So um, we came to the legislature and asked uh, Assembly Member Gallagher, who now is the minority leader, to run a bill to create an incentive program to put more nesting cover out on the landscape. The great thing about the program, it's very flexible for farmers and other landowners 
You know, we didn't want a one-size-fits-all. For instance, um, it allows people to rotate their fallowed fields around their property year to year. Um, and just make sure that the, the landowners, you know, have as much, uh, yeah, flexibility to implement it because without their support, we can't get this done, right? Um, but believe it or not, the program also, the dollars can be used on public lands as well. Oh, so, wow. yeah, hopefully some of our uh, state wildlife areas and refuges will see some habitat improvements. How is that program getting funded? Yeah, so the way that is done, originally the it was supposed to be funded by a bond measure that was on a, the statewide ballot, and unfortunately, that barely failed. And so, um, we went back and said, "Okay, what are we going to do now? If we can't get just general public funding, how are we going to get this thing funded?" And so, it was agreed that let's just incrementally increase the uh, upland and the duck mm-hmm. stamp fee on the state side. Um, the federal duck stamp had been increased a few years back by ten dollars, and yeah. There really wasn't much of an outcry on it. And if you look at all the different costs of waterfowl hunting, 10 bucks for each stamp is a drop in the bucket compared now to the price of shells, equipment, yeah. guns, everything else. That's not going to make or break anybody. And, it's, of course, it's a one-time payment every year, too. Mm-hmm. It's not like you have to go every couple weeks and keep purchasing these things. Um, but there was still some pushback on it from some hunters, but the vast majority recognize the benefit, rec- certainly recognize the need to bolster our local mallard and pheasant numbers. And so um, Assembly Member Aguiar Curry then ran a bill, and fortunately that made it w- its way through the process and was signed by the governor. So now year in and year out, we have these extra stamp fees that will go to this nesting bird program. And this year was the first year of the program being implemented, and I think it uh, included like 34 different la- landowners and over 2,000 acres of nesting habitat. And when I say nesting habitat, it's focused in areas where they think the greatest production, you know, possibility is. So it's going to be near brood water and other areas that historically produced a lot of birds. So we want just the best of the best properties. And, um, you know, the reports back that we got was that, you know, it did do some good. I mean, there were quite a few birds that were raised off of it. So Hopefully, we can expand the number of acres and landowners for next year. Um, a big focus will be getting back to the public lands, also implementing it on some of these state wildlife areas and refuges, um, which, uh, you know, they should do their part in improving the mallard production. But then it also, if it's in the hunt area, will create great new pheasant habitat yeah, definitely. and improve uh, opportunities for upland game bird hunters. So this is a one-time increase, or is this going to increase over time? It is It is going to be adjusted for inflation, just okay. like all of our just like other, all the stamps other stamps and licenses, yep. but that Correct. will just go up very little every okay. year. So yeah, but the base fee is, is $10. All right. And um, Well, it's good to see it's already in use and making yeah, effect. Exactly. Yep. Yep. I kind of see this as the culmination of a years-long effort that CWA has been working on to get uh, habitat back out on the ground, right? I remember us working on fallowed lands programs where, you know, if you go up and down the valley, when they fallow these fields, they just laser level them flat. There's nothing out there but brown dirt blowing in the dust, right? And we have always argued that um, if you're going to do that, if you're going to transfer water off fallow your field, at least let the 
volunteer sort of growth occur because it provides some level of cover, mm-hmm. some level of habitat. Right? Anything's better than nothing. Anything's better than nothing, right? And we've been working on that for years, going back to working with Lois yeah. Wolk when she was in the assembly, if you remember, right? And now we actually have a, a robust funded program that generates this habitat cover out there for uh, ducks and, frankly, other species as well, right? Which is, I think, part of the value here. And it's just great to see that hunters are willing to step up and put their money where their mouth is. It's not always the right thing for them to do to fund everything. But in the case of a program like this, I, I think it is the right thing. And, you know, it, I think one of the things Mark touched on are the partners who we worked with on this legislation, Gallagher on uh, the Republican side, Aguiar Curry on the Democratic side. I mean, James is now the number one Republican in charge of all the Republicans in the assembly and, and Cecilia is number two. <laughs> Uh, and so we've done a really great job of cultivating relationships with members who care about our issues and have then positioned themselves to be leaders within their legislative yeah. caucuses and help carry our priorities forward. Because that, that's part of the, the struggle here, right? You get yeah. some backbencher to carry something, they're maybe not going to be as successful. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Picking but, the right people to, to take your stuff right, forward. Right. Well, and, yeah. And, and along those lines. A lot of people ask me, you know, with all of our lobbying and all of our advocacy, how does CWA get into the doors of legislators that might be anti-hunting yeah. or anti-gun? And what I've told people for years, you know, CWA, we we have kids' camps. We have um, 17,000 to 20,000 acres a year that we restore on the ground of wetlands. And like Mark said, that's not just for waterfowl. Yeah. That helps wetland-dependent mammals, shorebirds, uh, all kinds of things. And so when they hear that we're multifaceted, we're walking the talk on habitat, we're walking the talk on getting kids out into the outdoors, it gets us into those doors. And then these guys, they're our closers. They bring us in, and and we have great relationships on both sides of the aisle. And that's the only way you're going to get anything done. And up and down the state, from San Diego all the way up to the very tip-top of California. And I you know, part of what we do that's great about building these relationships is we take people out in the blind. Uh, we take people out on field tours, right? You know, James, if you're listening to this, take you out in the blind this fall, but you got to prove your <laughs> shooting, man. Uh, can't be embarrassing us like that when you're I out there. I can't believe you went there. I, well, I know he's we're busy. supposed to leave it in the blind. <laughs> here. He's, he's got so much going on. We got to take him out more, actually, so he can be better. But we'll take yeah. Aguiar Curry out, for example. We took her out on a, uh, a field tour. And she got to see the habitat that we were talking about promoting through the bill before she actually ran it. And then we went out and we looked for nests um, in the grass, right? And so to to have that like physical hands-on experience to show them the value that we are trying to create through the legislation we're asking them to carry is invaluable. And, and, you know, CWA does a great job of organizing that stuff and taking those members out to show them that. Talking in stuffy offices about things that, you know, they can't see with their own eyes, that doesn't do us a whole lot of good. But getting them out there on the landscape where they can touch, feel, smell the whole thing, that's going to make an impact. Yeah, no, definitely. As much of that as we can. And when we do our lobby days, and um, so I, I'm over only at the Capitol a few days a year, right? These guys are there day in, day out. Um, but you have staffers and legislators looking you in the eye and saying, I had a blast at that trap shooting event last year, or I had a blast getting out on the wetlands tours. All those things, they remember, and they're going to remember them for a long time, and it's going to help them make the decisions that uh, are beneficial. Well, one of the decisions that 
hopefully is going to be beneficial for us in the near future is our pintail. So this is a, this is a hot topic. California hunters want their pintail. That's what we see. We're at one. Let's just start from the beginning. Why why are we at one? How has it come to that point? And, and where are we moving towards in the future? And how are we going to get there? Well, and also note that, you know, we have liberalized waterfowl regulations in for all other species to the extent that we can. You mm-hmm. know, we have some of the most liberal regulations we've ever had, but the one sore spot <laughs> across the country. Yeah, no, there's a lot us. of people that are envious of what we have here in our state and our flyway. But the one, you know, tough issue has been that pintail. Um, I think the pintail, you know, problem, part of it goes back to there were such high populations of pintails in the 1970s and the hangover effect of that. I mean, even though you will not hear regulators specifically say it, you know, there is this urge to get back to the populations that we once had for pintail. Now, realistically, with changing farming practices in Canada and, you know, loss of wetlands even now in the Dakotas and other parts of the prairie pothole region, we're probably never going to get back to 7 to 10 million pintail. It's just unrealistic. And so that's what we've tried to tell them is like, look, there's got to be ways that we can incrementally increase the, you know, bag limit, but do it in a way that recognizes that we're never going to get back to what we had, you know. 40, 50 years ago. Um, so the strategy has been just, hey, let's go and revisit this pintail model now that we've had in place for many years. And so, current, so, so talk about the pintail model. What is a pintail model? Okay, so it's part of adaptive harvest management. And it what it does is it um, sets the seasons and the bag limit frameworks for what we can we have in terms of hunting pintail Mm -hmm. and the last modification of that took away a three bird option so the most we could ever get under the current pintail model is two pintail okay and we can right now we're getting one Mm -hmm. um the good thing about the current model is it does reduce the um possibility of closed seasons okay so that is good so most years you're going to get one or two but you would never be able to get three yeah but that's still, for a California hunter, particularly a guy that's hunting the rice or some other open water, that's tough to deal with. You shoot your first one or two sprig in the morning, you're going to be then inundated with them for the rest yeah. of the day. And frankly, you know, our populations of pintail here in California are very robust. I mean, we winter like 60% of the entire continental population. So this one, one or two bird limit, more than any other state, California suffers from it. Mm-hmm. So what we did is we went to the service a number of years ago and said, look, we've pulled our our CWA members. We've actually pulled other duck hunters um, just generally, and they want the opportunity for more pintail in the bag in good pintail production years. And in exchange, they are willing to, you know, risk, um, I guess, a, uh, an increased, uh, you know, probability of some closed seasons when the populations are really low. Yeah. And can you incorporate this into the new model? So part of the way the existing model works is it treats pintail harvest as um, additive in terms of every bird you kill, that's one less, essentially one less than to go nest and to produce more gotcha. pintail. Okay. That's not the way for other duck species. 
For other duck species, their models are much more compensatory to where they recognize that, okay, you, you might shoot a, a, a male mallard, but he may have died of disease or something anyway. So they don't take that into yeah. account for pintail? Correct. Not the way we would like to see it. So okay. what, what we're hearing with the new model that's being developed. And, and let's go, it's the, when's the old model ending and when's the new model beginning? Yeah. So the old model um, hopefully will be done by 2025. Okay. And we will have a new model in place. The draft model is supposed to come out this fall. Okay. CWA has asked that we get some peer review, and it's not just a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and U.S. Geological Survey exercise, not just a government thing, but that private nonprofits can also provide their input. So when that is available, they yeah. have promised us there'll be a 30 to 60-day period where we can provide comment. And we have actually hired a science coordinator um, to help with that oh, wow. effort. Yes. Okay. And so he will be looking at the model and really, you know, critiquing it and providing his input. Um, so, you know, in terms of then the model, um, you know, being then fully uh, implemented, yeah, it would be in 2025. And again, our, what, our aim is to have that three-bird option. The good thing is what we're hearing just internally is there will be a three-bird option. And you're saying three-bird option as it's a possibility, but yeah. it's not a guaranteed three birds. It can not, still be one. No, it can still be correct. two. It can it still be zero. It would have to be for just good pintail production okay. years that weren't. But it's it, an but option. It's, it'll be an option. And that they are going to treat pintail more as um, the harvest as compensatory, which we've been asking for for a long time. So... Hopefully, you know, that's the case. That's what we're hearing, again, informally. But until the new draft model comes out, we won't. How long has sure. the current model been in place? Since, I think, 2009. So right? it's, it's due for a redo. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So, yeah. And that that's a, adaptive harvest management. I mean, that's the way it's supposed to be, is that every few years you look at what you've been doing science-wise and with your models and then tweak them again. And because if you never change things up, you'll never learn. Yeah. And so you got to, you know, do that. We think, you know, the extra bird in the bag, it's such an incremental increase that it's not going to negatively impact their populations. We're not asking for more days. As every hunter more knows, days are much more important in determining the amount of harvest than is the bag limit. Mm -hmm. So we think just this minor tweak in the bag limit That'll help our hunters out, make them more happy, but it won't have any adverse impact on pintail populations. Good. Oh. Over the years, you know, we've been working on this, like you say, with the feds. Um, and several years ago, we'd have a couple of their decision makers come out for a hunt so they can sit there. <laughs> I can tell pintail, where this is going. Get their pintail at, you know, five minutes after shoot time and then sit there for the rest of the day with tens of thousands of pintail around. Um, it made an impact on them, but they have their processes and, and they are very conservative and extremely slow moving on these types of changes that, been, we, that we've been working on and lobbying them for, for years. Yeah. I mean, a 14 year model is, seems like it needs yeah. to be updated. <laughs> yeah. It's frustrating. Yeah. yeah. But we've had folks come out here from DC who we are working on this with they specifically come out because they want to shoot their pintail. 
Oh, right well, I've, I've had I mean, people call me from all over the country yep. for the hump program. Hey, where can I shoot a cinnamon teal? Where could I shoot a pintail? It's like, yep. well, yep. kind of anywhere in the <laughs> in the marsh. I mean, key staffers, lead committee staffers, uh, took him out in the grasslands. He's got his pintail mounted in his office, yep. right? I mean, it's a... It's an important issue, and again, bringing people out to understand it from our perspective is what we do to create that value. Do those outside entities that you guys are bringing in, say that person isn't even from this state, does that help us in the long run? Oh, yeah. I mean, because you're you're trying to bring people out and have conversations with them and educate them about why this is a priority to the organization. It's one thing to do it in a room like this, a windowless conference room in Washington, D.C., whether that's on the Hill or just outside, because we've gone to dozens of meetings on this issue back in D.C., and you've been to flyway meetings and all over the place where we've advocated for it. Nothing compares to actually having that conversation in a blind oh, while you're 100%. actually hunting, and then you get to see the abundance of pintails around you and sort of get an appreciation for, okay, this is why we're talking seriously about proposing to change the policy. Yeah, no, definitely. And the best way to get somebody out there is to have them see it firsthand like you said you can only Correct. talk about it so much show pictures some slideshows but when they get out there and see it for themselves it's 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 a different story and directly to your question i would say the vast majority of the people that are making these decisions are not californians right which is interesting because you know as a california duck hunter a lot of these folks that are not the most pleased about our pintail limit probably think it's coming directly from our legislator in california and, and as you said it's it's not i mean yes it is but at the same time it's not so it's uh, it's something that hopefully in the next few years we'll have the option for three, and if it's a good population, we'll get three. Better than one, better than two, but, you know, hopefully we're, we work our way there. So another thing that has been brought to the attention of a lot of local hunters, uh, myself living in Napa, California, I have uh, Benicia not that far away from me. We have a lot of navigable waterways that are eligible to hunt. Um, but there has been a pushback in the area of Benicia from non-hunters and has come to kind of a head at a point of, are we going to continue to allow hunting? Hunting has been allowed here for a long time, or is it going to get shut down? I know, Mark, you're kind of on the forefront of this. So if you could touch on this, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Now, and you're right. There's a lot of navigable water out there, which has a lot of duck hunting taking place on it. You know, fortunately, the state considers that public trust waters that as long as you have a boat, you know, you those are, are open to everybody and, um, you know, available for recreation, which specifically includes hunting. So it's almost a right under our California Constitution, and we always want to kind of assert it that way, mm-hmm. right? Hunting basically is a privilege if you look in Correct. other parts of state law. Yeah. But hunting navigable waters is actually a right, and you know we need to protect those areas. I think above all others because um, it is a right and um, something that is is protected under our state constitution. So, Benicia, um, you know, unfortunately, it's just one of a long list of local communities that have tried to ban hunting on navigable waters. We've had this issue come up in Morro Bay. We've had it come up in the city of Hercules in San Francisco Bay, the city of Mountain View in San Francisco Bay. We've had it come up in Tamales Bay. Um, And so where you have big urban areas next to hunting areas, you know, new people move in, they hear gunshots, and all of a sudden, you know, there's there's a problem. And they 
look for any means possible then to shut it down. Now, fortunately, in the case of Benicia, they did actually the right thing. They took it to the Fish and Game Commission. Rather than, say, adopting their own local ordinance and trying to ban it that way, they went through the appropriate process, which is the Fish and Game yeah. Commission. So we've had some very robust conversations there. Um, at the end of the day, you know, we want to make clear that the decision has to be based on evidence and science, not on irrational fear or prejudice against hunters, which clearly in that town there's prejudice against hunters. Um, and so fortunately at this last commission meeting, the commission finally formally rejected the petition and agreed that there just wasn't evidence that there was a safety issue. Good. And obviously there's no impact on waterfowl populations or other species. Yeah. Now the, the commission did um, want to look at ways to maybe reduce noise issues because Southampton Bay, which is right next to Benicia, is a very enclosed bay. And it definitely, you know, if you live right on the water there, you're going to hear the gunshots in the morning. So, you know, Morro Bay has a little bit later start time. Yeah. We have had other duck clubs that maybe have gone to 20-gauge in order to kind of reduce noise, you know, marginally. So there'll be more discussions just on the noise issue. But the good thing is, again, the petition was rejected. I, I can tell you this, the uh, local residents that attended this meeting in San Jose that I was just at, they were livid. They were really angry. I think they had hoped that the commission would agree with them and actually put a ban in place. But to the commission's credit, uh, you know, the commission did not do that. Now, because of this, though, there may now, and they are threatening state legislation. They can oh, wow. also bring this before the state legislature. Okay. And if the state legislature passed a bill, that would essentially trump anything that the commission did. So Interesting. hopefully that won't be the case. But if it is, Mark yeah. and I are down there. And <laughs> I can tell you this, we will get a very large coalition of sportsmen's groups to oppose it. And it wouldn't be the first time that the legislature had passed a bill banning uh, a specific type of activity and sort of usurping the role of the Fish and Game Commission. We did that with bobcat hunting a couple of years ago. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, like, I've got really strong feelings on this. I like this tag team with Mark and I. Mark's like the play-by-play -play guy. I'm the color commentary guy. I mean, I just think you give them an inch, they take a mile. And whatever sort of uh, template you come up with to fit the situation in Benicia, you'll have community after community coming forward and either asking yeah. for that or, or seeking to address it in their own specific way. Yeah. And the the issue for me here, it's, it's not the hunters. It's, it's us as people, right? Like, we continue to grow. We continue to expand. Uh, I used to own a house in Natomas. Natomas used to be all rice fields. And mm -hmm. then as the city of Sacramento grew north, and now yeah. as Roseville is growing west yeah. with all that yeah. development out on Fittiment, you're yeah. encroaching into these areas that were open ag lands and hunting areas, right? Yep. And so I move into Natomas uh, when I first moved in there, and I, next door shows up, you know, that app on your phone. Yeah. Um, and people are like, what's what's all that noise? Like, what are they shooting out there? Because right across Elkhorn are the rice fields, and people are shooting there because they have historically shot there. It's humans moving into these spaces yeah. and these environments that are creating the conflict, and then they want to go deal with it. It's like if you buy a house that gets built next to the Sacramento airport, right. are you then you have the right to go complain about the noise yeah. and tell people you don't want planes right. flying in and out of there? I, I, I liken it to something similar, and I recognize that there's got to be a balance, and I think that CWA has taken the high road and said we're willing to sit down and talk about compromises mm -hmm. that can create 
things that the people in Venetia want to see and continue to provide opportunities to hunters. But that balance needs to be tempered with the fact that hunting, I think, is is a right. It is a privilege. It is an opportunity that is becoming more and more limited because we as humans keep moving into these areas and destroying habitat and taking away those opportunities. We're going to have those wildland urban interface issues. We have it for fire. We have it now for hunting and resource management issues. And there has to be a balance there. Yeah, no, definitely. And and me as, you know, just an average hunter who, who likes to go out and sees this thing, it seems a little bit crazy to me because everything's happening legally. So in my eyes, you know, it's, it's, a little outside the box. So just for my curiosity, what are some of the craziest bills, you know, or propositions that you guys have come across anti-hunting or others um, in your time in the legislation? Well, in, early in my career, there was a bill to flatly ban dove hunting. And we oh, wow. had to really fight that one back. And it was carried by a pretty influential Bay Area lawmaker. Luckily, we dis- persuaded him to just drop the bill entirely. But it was sponsored by the Humane Society, and it was really a, a shot across the bow. Um, How long ago? 2003. Okay. That was Nation, wasn't it? Joe mm-hmm. Nation. Yeah, and he correct. was a pretty moderate Democrat to boot on yeah. top of that, right? And so you you never know where these ideas are going to come from. We've seen the bill, yeah. the bill, obviously, to ban the use of dogs for bear and bobcat. Mm-hmm. Right? That passed, unfortunately. Right? Yeah. It makes you wonder oh. if somebody at some point will come back and just say you can't use dogs for hunting at all, right? What does that yeah. do to a and community? I look at just dogs. personally, like how much, and I know John, same thing, my dog means to me hunting. Oh, I mean, yeah. I would not even almost want to hunt yeah. if I didn't have the dog out there. Yeah, I know John and with his pheasant to ta- dogs. To well, take that away from the houndsman, I thought that was just the biggest travesty ever. I mean, they have have as much of a right to use their dogs for hunting as any other hunter does. Correct. So, yeah. Yeah, it's it's tough, very tough. And 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 you know, they're the folks that are opposed to hunting, they're always looking for an angle. They're always looking for an angle. So, we have to be vigilant at all times. And um I think, you know, our our stand on habitat and um I mean, we're the protectors. We're the first line protectors of habitat in the state, wetland habitat. Um, it would be amazing, amazingly depressing how much less water, uh, you know, wetlands would be out there right now mm-hmm. if it wasn't for hunters. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we'd have no Sassoon Marsh. I mean, that's one of the probably on a national, maybe worldwide basis. That is one of the best examples of how hunters banded together to protect that habitat. It would have been encroached on by homes and, oh, and development um, 30 years ago. Yeah, and and as somebody who's listening to this or a CWA member, what what can they do to to make any sort of influence? I know I receive CWA emails and it's like, hey, write your legislator, and we have those. Do those work? Yes. Do do they get those? Yes, they do. And I think that CWA does a great job at pushing the grassroots messaging and having their volunteers respond. Um, it does make a difference at the end of the day. It is impactful. Um, Nothing is a substitute for the one-on-one relationships that we have and our partners like Rick Ortega, the GM at the Grassland, and our ability to go in and talk directly to legislators. But they want to hear from constituents. They want to know what the people in their communities are saying. And I think it's incredibly important for our members in urban areas to understand that even better than the members in rural areas, right? Like James Gallagher will hear that 
a couple hundred people contacted him on the issue, but James is already there in our corner. What we need is we need those members who live in the Bay Area who are represented by more progressive or moderate Democrats who might not have the personal connection with hunting uh, or, or an appreciation for what we as a community do to hear from those folks. But right? they'll, they'll, they'll receive that. They'll like, receive those. Okay. Their staff triages them and gives them counts on how many messages that they're getting in. And they're the use of a tool like the CWA grassroots alert. I mean, you got to click a button and you got to put your name and your address in. And that's it. it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, what, yeah. what more do you want? We, yeah. we, we can't do it for you, but it doesn't take a lot for you to do right. it yourself. And it does make an, you know, that voter voice, we need more people to sign up to. We yeah. have a great yeah. impact. But, um, more the better, definitely. I think it's, it's really, and I don't know if you guys know the numbers off your top of your head, but right now approximately 70,000 duck stamps are sold in California a year, right? Not all of those are hunters. Some mm -hmm. are stamp collectors, but it's a good, it gives us a good gauge. How many letters, I mean, we, we do make an impact, but there's sure a lot on more a, guys, a, really a lot more hot, hunters, men and women that could, yeah, could on be On a hot topic here. issue, if we get over 1,000, we'll be lucky. And so, yeah, so yeah, that's less than, cute, what, 5% exactly. of our membership? So there's a massive amount of room to grow there, and we need to get those other folks involved. But that's, I mean, that, like, to give ourselves credit, that's still pretty good, right? Like, right. actually, if you look it's at industry standards, <laughs> a typical marketing campaign, like, yeah, that's a pretty good yeah. click-through rate, right? right? Like, companies spend millions of dollars targeting advertisements to people and get lower success rates than that, right? Good so point. we have a really actively involved community, but I always feel like the community can do more, right? Because right. being a member of this community is to recognize that you are a member of a community whose sort of lifestyle and, and uh, you know, your pursuits are constantly under threat. Yeah. And so that is different than just being sort of a, a passive participant, right? You, you, I think you have to be compelled to be a more active participant in the process, um, going to your dinners and taking the 30 seconds it takes to click on a link yeah. when we ask you to communicate with legislators. Like we, trust me, like we don't just sit here and are like, okay, something like let's just send that out and get them to participate. It's like, no, this is the big deal. This is what we need people engaged on. And, and we are very meticulous about what we decide to put out and ask people to help yeah, with. Yeah, we don't want to waste people's time or burn them out. I mean, exactly. You yeah. know, if you send out too many emails, then people just roll their eyes. Um, the other way people can really get involved, John mentioned it earlier, is, you know, our CWA Lobby Day. Okay. And actually, you know, for people that are comfortable doing that and would like to have face-to-face -face meetings with legislators to tell their personal story in particular as to why you why do they hunt? Why are they into con conservation? Those kind of face-to-face -face meetings really make an impact on people. Um, and so just getting as many of them involved as possible, I think would be great. Um, you know, our last lobby day, we probably had like, I don't know, 30 participants participants maybe right we break into teams 30. of like four to five folks and these gentlemen will make appointments ahead of time with as many legislator offices as possible so say we have four teams of, of five people so that's 20 people going out and we have a meeting every half hour boom boom for the you know and we can do that for the whole day or for a half a day that's a lot of offices yeah and i've participated i think in every one of them um over the years we had a you know, COVID was a setback, but before that, we were doing them pretty much annually. And um, I've seen legislators and their staffers' eyes light up. Really? When we have, especially if we have teenagers in the room, mm -hmm. yeah. we've had young men and young women 
Uh, my son has come. Mark's daughters have come. We've had other members who brought their daughters or sons, and they start talking about being in the marsh at sunrise, seeing the marsh come alive, seeing all the birds, all the waterfowl, but shorebirds and and uh, like wrens, and and you might see a muskrat swimming around. The legislators key in on those kids, and they really, I mean, it's its amazing. It really is. And then, of course, we get to talk to them about all the other things we do, and they're seeing normal people, not not the paid staff. They're seeing volunteers taking the time to talk to them about it. Yeah. It's, uh, I think they're great. I mean, I'd like to see more lobby days, maybe even twice a year, but it's, <laughs> yeah. it's hard. Well, maybe. It's, hard. It, it's, it's logistically tough to get in front of all these legislators because they're busy people too. It is, and our volunteers are busy with their own jobs and their right. own lives, right? And to Correct. ask them to take a day to come down to Sacramento to participate in that is, is a lot to ask, but it's so tremendously valuable. Every interest group in the state of California does something like this, right? And some of them do it more often than others. I mean, look at the unions are there almost every week, it seems like, right? And, now and I wonder got, if that's an overload, right? Because they have their T-shirts and they come in. I don't, right, you know. Right. And they come in in numbers and they have programs designed around this thing. I mean, we, we have to accommodate our volunteers, their busy schedules, the fact that they live throughout the state. But even just getting a small increase in the number of people that wanted to participate in something like that. And it's not anything to be scared of, right? Like, we provide the talking points. We provide and set up the appointments. If it's going to be a tough meeting, one of us is usually sitting in <laughs> that conversation. We're not going to abandon you yeah. to some place where you're going to get yelled at or get a finger pointed at <laughs> yeah, you. Right. You know, our, our job is to allow you to have a conversation with people. And what you have to recognize when you do that is like you're the subject matter expert in the room. That person that you're talking to yeah. has likely never been hunting before. They don't know about wetlands restoration. You're educating them and – you know, giving them valuable information. It's not that they're interrogating you or, or looking down at you. So yeah. people who are listening to this who think they might be interested in doing something like that, you should definitely participate. Oh, that's that's great. Any, any you know, more people we can have come out and lobby for, you know, what they support is is a great thing, whether it's sending an email or going out to one of those days. And I know through the last 40, 30 minutes that we've talked, you guys have dropped a lot of knowledge about, you know, legislation and, and that sort of thing. So what background did you come from? We'll start with you, Mark. And and how mm -hmm. did you end up with CWA? Like, wh where did you start to get into this? Well, I fished my entire life. I didn't get into hunting, believe it or not, until I was in my 20s. But, you know, once I got hooked on that, it was an addiction for sure, to my wife's dismay. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, the way I came into it, I, I first went and got my degree in political science and then went and got a master's in government. Mm -hmm. And then I did a stint down at the legislature uh, working as an aide for a really conservative Republican. His name was Mickey Conroy. He was an old, crusty Marine. He was the funnest guy to work for ever. And then I went off and did a little more schooling and... Um, then got a job with the Department of Fish and Wildlife as okay. a scientific aide, yep. which I thought was very valuable, just learning how the department operates and its use of science and getting a greater, greater appreciation of that was, was good. And then luckily I was able to get back in over at the legislature as a consultant for the Assembly Water Parks and Wildlife Committee under then Assemblyman uh, Mike Machado. He's a farmer in, the, in Stockton. And he was from a different party. He was a moderate Democrat, 
Um, but he understood the value of hunting and he was very supportive of his rural community. So he was a good fit for me, I think. Yeah. And then luckily after doing that for about a year and a half, um, I was able to land a position at CWA lobbying with, with Bill Gaines and uh, been doing that ever since. I mean, there was a time where we kind of split off our government affairs into a separate nonprofit so that we could not just represent duck hunters, but all hunters. Um, but, you know, through all of these years, we've been representing CWA in one form or another. And it's just been the best job for me. I feel so fortunate to be able to lobby for what you truly have a passion for and believe in. Yeah. There's, you can't put a price on that. No, so, definitely. So how long have you been with CWA now? 23 years. Wow. Yep. If you count, you know, the California Outdoor Heritage Alliance. Yeah. Of it, so. All right. It's been great. Mark, what about your background? Where do you start up? Yeah, I kind of come into this from a non-traditional perspective. I've got an undergraduate degree in microbiology with an oh. emphasis in genetics. Very nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was working for consulting companies and pharmaceutical firms across the United States and sort of got a little bored with that and ended up stumbling into a fellows program at the Capitol. Basically, they pay you a stipend to take uh, public policy classes at Sac State, and then they kind of put you into the legislature as a glorified intern. Yeah, And I loved it, and I stuck with it, and kind of worked my way through the various positions in legislative office and stepped out to become a lobbyist. And here I am 20 years later owning my own lobbying firm. Um, but in this particular community, I mean, look, I grew up in Sacramento, right? You would think that like with the rice and the Delta and the Sassoon right here, like, you know, everybody's got to know about ducks and duck hunting, right? Like, no, my first exposure to it was when I applied for a job at Ducks Unlimited in 2013. And, um, they were really looking to change their public policy program. It had always been conservation people who were doing public policy. And what they wanted to do was they wanted to hire somebody who was an advocate who understood the building and the process and could learn about the important policy okay. things, right? So I walk in my first day of work. I'd never hunted. I didn't fish. I didn't grow up in that sort of environment. I remember going to Al Montana's and sitting in a blind with Mark Biddlecombe <laughs> and Al and watching them shoot because I didn't even have a license. <laughs> and so I couldn't shoot. And this was like my exposure because I got hired in like October. So right at the time Wait, that hunting season yeah. started, that <laughs> yeah. was my initiation. So I'm an adult onset hunter, but it gives me this appreciation for the fact that like you'd think everybody knows about it, but they don't, right? Yeah. It's very easy to just like be oblivious to what's sort of happening with these communities and, and these resources just even in your own backyard, right? And uh, it's really bit me hard. I mean, I, I don't work exclusively on these air issues anymore um, because I represent a variety of clients, but um, like my most passionate enthusiasm for lobbying revolves around you know, the missions that were instilled in me at DU and at CWA and working with the folks in the grassland and uh, supporting the passions of the people that I see that I interact with, right? And frankly, I enjoy doing it myself. I'm really appreciative that I stumbled into this community and now am an active participant in it. That's that's awesome. And, and John, I know a little bit of your background is not, not political from the get-go, but you've been in it such a long time. So tell the folks how you kind of got in with CWA, the the shortened version of where you started and how you ended up here. Sure. Um, I'll give you a real brief version, but, you know, I grew up back east. A lot of folks don't know this. I grew up in Chicago. I actually was in the city of Chicago 
city limits through seventh grade, um, private school, Catholic school. Um, but my parents and my grandparents and my uncles and my cousins all hunted and fished. So I started at a very, very early age and um, camping, hunting, and fishing. My first pheasants uh, were when I was eight years old. Okay. And they were planted birds, but they still counted. And uh, <laughs> first waterfowl hunts were um, really when I was about uh, 14. My uncle had, we'd, we'd go out in the city of Chicago in these bull rush, that's what they called them back there, bull rush marshes um, on Lake Calumet. And teal, we'd have the early teal seasons, mallards, pheasants around there. So I grew up loving all of that. Um, and then when I turned 20, my parents threw a major curveball, and my dad took a promotion with his company to California. I had never been west of Denver. Wow. So, and most of the country, believe it or not, thinks that there's a bunch of nuts and whack jobs in California. And I grew up thinking that too. I had no. I had no. Some truth to that. I, you know, growing up in Chicago, you know, we were conservative Democrats, and I had no all hunted and fishing. But everybody thought California was Hollywood. That's all yeah. that they thought about California. So when I got out here, my dad was in Orange County. I hated it. I went back to Chicago a few times. But then I got into junior college there in Southern California, Fullerton. Um, they had a pre-wildlife management degree, and they got me to transfer to Humboldt State for uh, my wildlife degree. And I was taking seasonal jobs with Fish and Game at the time and California Waterfowl. I was okay. one of the first seasons for Cal Waterfowl in 1987. And it just built me up. I got a master's in uh, wildlife at Iowa State. And uh, when I got back, I was uh, became a permanent biologist with Cal Fish and Game, and I spent 21 years there. And all through that time, I was connected to CWA and hunted the public areas for pheasants and ducks all those years. And uh, when the opportunity to become president at Cal Waterfowl opened up, um, I was hesitant because I had 21 years with the state and the pension yeah. there and everything, <laughs> and... and uh, I was uh, the executive director of the Fish and Game Commission at the time, which is a uh, you know, sought-after position. Um, but some friends here said, you got to give it a try. And as I met with the board members here and interviewed and kind of got, um, got the offer, uh, made the big life shift from government employee to nonprofit. And immediately I saw the benefits of the nonprofit world <laughs> and how quickly we could get things done, how fast we could cut through red tape, yeah, um, and uh, how much passion. I knew there was a lot of passion working at the fishing game and the commission, and I was in the the game shop of fishing game for many many years. I knew hunters, but I did not know duck hunters as well as I learned when I got here. And the passion and and the um, how serious they take it. Yeah. So. Uh, fast forward 13 years now, you know, yeah. um, I have announced to the board and through the magazine that next year I'm going to step down and semi-retire. So that'll be a 35-year career with, uh, you know, wildlife. and oh, uh, California thanks um, you for everything you've done. Well, I mean, I've, it's, it's been, been a great ride. It's been a great ride. And yeah. I'm not going to go away. I'm going to hang in there Good. for part-time and and uh, help. You want to work I in the can. hunt program? We got. We need some you tech know, positions. Very, <laughs> hey, nothing's off the table. Nothing's off the table. <laughs> So anyway, good. Well, kind of the last thing that I 
have been thinking about through in this podcast is, you know, there's there's the good things that happen, there's the bad things that happen. What's what's the future in California? And I know we can't predict the future, but what do you guys feel feel the future is for California hunting? Um, and I want you to be honest with: it. Are we doom and gloom, and it's a matter of time, or are we? You know, we're going to fight the good fight, and we're going to keep it going, and let's see where this goes. One thing that I could say real quick here: When I was with the Fish and Game Commission, I would go to the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agency meetings where all the Western fish and game agencies, and then there's a national group also, they get together twice a year, and they talk about exactly what you just asked. And I can remember being in the uh, a group with directors from all the Western states, and they were saying, if you don't have 4% of your population as hunters, you're irrelevant and you're in big trouble. Well, California's been less than 4% for a long, long time. But I think we're extremely relevant. Good. And these guys can attest to it. Walking through those hallways, if we didn't have Mark and Mark here um, in front of the those folks, our relevancy would be way low. The other thing is all these activities, and we're getting the public to realize that we're taking um, – sure, we're taking a small amount of animals. We're not taking them for trophies. We're taking them for food. But the benefits – of what we're doing for the habitat restoration and habitat protection for all these other species and for the public to enjoy outweighs any small amount yeah. of animals we take. And our partnerships with groups like Audubon and the Nature Conservancy helps trumpet that across Good. the state. So I think, you know, it's easy to say doom and gloom and to be depressed, but our waterfowl hunter numbers have been very stable since 91. Mm -hmm. they, the amount of stamps sold has been very stable. Um, of course, we're getting older. We got older guys. <laughs> got to get some more young folks yeah. here. But, but I would say it's not doom and gloom. When I look at these kids' camps and we're teaching children um, the value of hunting and yeah. they're getting their hunter education stamps and they're coming out with their eyes, boys and girls, they're like so excited and so amped up. It gives me a lot of hope for the future. Good. Good. I mean, I have some of that. I definitely think that organizations like California Waterfowl have got to maintain a strong public policy presence, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you're not at the table, you're on the table. Yeah, <laughs> and, that's a great um, yeah. good point. You know, yeah. we, there have to be advocates for these communities down at the Capitol on a daily basis because uh, you will get run over. Right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, uh, I had an experience on Grizzly Island a couple years ago where um, you guys were offering a hunter safety education course and somebody pulls up in like a shiny silver model s tesla and gets out it's some skinny dude in like skinny jeans and you're like what's this guy doing here like clearly he'd driven all the way in from san francisco or something like that and he wanted to learn how to hunt ducks because people are into this like grow your own food oh, yeah. eat organic yep. source your food sort of movement and yep. so that you know what that crystallized for me at that moment was like you got your traditional wing of hunting, yeah. but you have people who can find their way into this environment because they maybe approach it from a different angle. It's Correct. No, it's no less relevant. It's just finding those people and communicating with those people, right, and passing along a tradition to the next generation, creating opportunities for the next folks. So, I'm, in, you know, I am cautiously optimistic about it, but, you know, California is a state where the tradition of outdoor heritage is not as strong as it is, even in other blue West Coast states like Oregon and Washington, right? So there's 
a lot of work that needs to be done here. There's a lot of education. Take the Benicia thing we talked about earlier today. Like one of the things in their petition was people are going to get hurt from shotgun shells. And they have no appreciation for the difference between how far a bullet travels versus how much pellets coming out of a shotgun shell travel, right? And so just basic education like that. These are the things that have to be communicated. Somebody's got to be standing on the wall, not to borrow the line from, I don't know what, a few good men or whatever it is that Jack <laughs> Nicholson says, but you know, we have there's a wall and somebody needs to defend it. And that's what CWA does with their grassroots advocacy and their uh, professional advocacy staff. And it, it needs to continue. Good. I would just say, I mean, I do recognize we have a very difficult political environment here. I mean, the anti-gun, anti-hunting interests are very many and very well-funded. And, you know, there is a a lot of that sentiment in the general public, too. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we have, you know, the challenges with getting water to wetlands. Now there's huge competition for water. You know, again, things like Klamath. And so there's a lot of challenges. However, my piece of optimism is we have such a great story to tell the rest of the public about what we bring to the table in terms of public benefits and chiefly it's the conservation benefits yeah i've heard it said before it's the greatest story never told um we've tried to tell it but um sometimes you know it hasn't been that well received or that heard the way it should be I really think if we can communicate our messages appropriately and educate the general public about what we bring to the table, we're going to get a lot of support. Um, you know, there's the 10% of the public that is just adamantly against hunting, and then there's 10% that are adamantly for it, and it's that 80% in the middle. I think there's a lot of open minds there, and, you know, we have a lot of room there to uh, focus our education efforts. and. I, I truly believe if, if we do get our message out the right way, we can protect hunting in the long term. And particularly, too, as it relates to waterfowl hunting. I mean, there is no other type of hunting that brings that amount of conservation benefit to the state. So waterfowl hunting, if it was to ever go, it would be the last hunting yeah. you know, on the list. I think je- people are generally more acceptive or accepting of waterfowl hunting than they are of other types. Yeah, well... I mean, thank you guys for coming on. I'm sure all of the listeners of today have gained an immense amount of knowledge um, based on what we've talked about, as well as our membership and what they can do to, you know, help advocate for their their rights that they have. So, again, thank you guys for coming on, and hopefully, down the future, we'll be given even more good news about where we sit as hunters in California. My name is Carson. Thanks for watching the Save It for the Blind podcast here at the CWA Roseville headquarters. You can find this podcast at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever podcasts are found.